please turn also to the Old Testament, to the book of Ecclesiastes. We are at the last section, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 8 through 14. This is our text for this morning. Ecclesiastes 12, verses 8 through 14. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. But we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading, and also the preaching of his holy word. Almighty God, we thank you this morning, for you indeed are our our great counselor, our wise God. Father, we pray acknowledging how much it is that we need wisdom from your word. Father, we are in need of humble, teachable hearts. We pray that your Holy Spirit would transform our thinking. Father, we acknowledge that we are in need of your word to goad us. That we are like brute beasts, oftentimes. That we, we delight in our own comfort and our own ease. And Father, we pray that your word would goad us on to greater faith, to greater obedience. Father, may we trust in our Lord Jesus Christ who indeed is sufficient to pay the price for our sins. Father, we pray that the good news of the gospel would go forward with power, that we had an advocate, and this is Jesus Christ our Lord. We acknowledge that he alone is the propitiation for our sins. Father, he alone is able to pay the price to set us free, and that we lack our righteousness of our own, but that Jesus gives it to us so freely And he commands us that we might receive it by faith. Father, if any are here who do not know you, we pray, Father, that you would do a mighty work in their hearts, that they might embrace the good news of the gospel for eternal life. And we pray, Father, that your son, Jesus Christ, would be exalted, and that your servant would be humbled. We thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. Oftentimes in life, solutions come after all of the other options are exhausted. Do you find that to be true in the Christian life? Whether it be uh, your hope, whether it be your true satisfaction, that it requires that you try all the options until they're all exhausted and what is left is God. And then you realize, that is the only option left. It seems as if that's what's being presented here in the book of Ecclesiastes. 
that he presents all these options and, and he tells you up front. They're all going to result in failure. They're all, they're all meaningless. They're all vanity. They're but a breath. They vanish. And, and he talks about how this is striving after wind. And then he gets to the very last section. And he says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. He's saying, hey, listen, after you've considered all the options and exhausted them, then here is the one path that leads to life. It is Jesus Christ who is the true shepherd. And it is fearing him. And fearing God means, if we're going to fear God, it means that we ought to obey him. And he commands us to believe upon Jesus Christ, first and foremost. And here, we acknowledge that Ecclesiastes is talking about life under the sun. That life under the sun is difficult because of, because of the consequences of the fall. That Adam and Eve chose their own way. They chose sin. And they brought upon themselves all kinds of miseries. And in this book of Ecclesiastes, it's as if he's describing the, the various curses. The, the curse of the fall, the curse of labor, right? And, and uh, the curse... Uh, the curse of the relationship, the curse of childbearing, that all these things are difficult. And life under the sun has its challenges then. And that there's no true meaning, there's no true satisfaction if we're attempting to pursue each of those things independently of God. And as he gets to this end of the book, he has these two bookends. And he wants you to see that he had a thesis. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And so we come to this final passage, the epilogue, and the truth that we see here. Ecclesiastes contrasts the futility of a godless life with the true joy and satisfaction found in fearing and obeying God. <clears throat> Ecclesiastes contrasts the futility of a godless life with the true joy and satisfaction found in fearing and obeying God. <clears throat> we'll look at this in four points. Uh, the first is the thesis of Ecclesiastes in verse 8. <clears throat> Second, the objective of Ecclesiastes. Third, the source. And fourth, the conclusion. <clears throat> so the first point, the thesis of Ecclesiastes. We have this in verse 8. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. <clears throat> Perhaps if you think back several months, it was it in January that we started this a series on Ecclesiastes. At Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 2. You have the exact same statement. Nearly to the word. Vanity of vanities says the preacher. All is vanity. In literature. That uh, this is a literary device known as an inclusio. They function as two bookends. If you think about a bookshelf. Uh, where you don't have uh, the, the walls on the side, uh, you oftentimes on a shelf you have bookends that they keep the books from flopping over. <clears throat> and this statement, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity, they function as two bookends. So it's as if <clears throat> he's telling you what he's going to prove, he proves it, and then he tells you what he proved. Very much as if you attend a spelling bee. You tend to spelling bee. How, how, what's, the, what's the method that they use? So let's say, let's say the word is water. So they have the, the student say water. W-A-T-E-R, water. 
And so here, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. And that from chapter 1, verse 2, to chapter 12, verse 8, he's proving this thesis. This vanity of vanities. This word means breath or vapor. It's like smoke. And when we think about the way that Hebrew works, vanity of vanities, this is the way that Hebrew expresses a superlative. So when, when Hebrew, they talk about the, the highest heavens, that their usage is heaven of heavens. So vanity of vanities is it's a chief vanity. It's, it's the worst of vanities. And what he's describing, the author, is that a life pursued without reference or without reverence to God is meaningless. And it ends in frustration. It ends merely in the striving after wind. And here is as if the author is saying, hey, listen, I'm going to try to spare you of all the options because I've explored them. And this is where you're going to end up. In the exact same place. Oh, go ahead. You can test it. But I'm going to try to spare you of this striving after wind, this frustration. We consider some of these vanities. In chapter 1, verses 12 to 18, he explores the vanity of human wisdom. That uh, human wisdom is not going to leave you with uh, all the answers to life. That you're not going to find true joy and satisfaction because in human philosophy you figured it all out. And figured out the the secret to to life's purpose and meaning. Then in chapter 2, he describes the vanity of pleasure. No, it's not going to satisfy. Then there's the vanity of, of, uh, of pursuing wisdom. And what he talks about there is he says the outcome is the same. Whether you have the fool or you have the wise, they, they both end up in the same place. They both end up in death. And he also says that, that just, as, just as the fool is eventually forgotten, he says the righteous, those who attempt to live righteously, they will be forgotten also. He speaks also about the vanity of labor, of work. <clears throat> in chapter 2, verses 18 to 23... He says, the, the most painful thing to see is after you've spent all this time and effort laboring and earning all of uh, the possessions, he says that the, the saddest thing is that you must leave it with another. And how often do we see this, especially in, with immigrant families where these immigrants come and they came with uh, $17 in their back pocket and the clothes on their back having fled from someone trying to kill them or take over their, their country. And they come here and they work uh, however many hours a day just to put food on the table. And then after many years, they actually become quite successful. But then in all their work, they, they didn't quite teach their children a, a valid work ethic. So they expected that everything should be provided for them. And then here's that sadness of, them laboring so hard, and then having to give it all to these children who don't have a good work ethic, and they blow it all. And then there's the, val- the, the vanity of riches. Chapter 5, that Kohelet, the preacher, the author, he makes it this clear. He, he warns in this statement, which all of, all of us ought to take, ought to take seriously. He who loves money 
will not be satisfied with money. If you love it, it's not going to satisfy you. The more you have of it, it's like drinking. It's like drinking the ocean water. It might look, it might uh, sparkle, but uh, it's going to dry you out. And the more wealth you have, the less that it will satisfy. Perhaps we can state these vanities in another way. What is the pursuit of life without reverence or reference to God other than a love of the world? They're one and the same. If we're trying to pursue any of these things, it's like loving the world. <clears throat> we read earlier in 1 John chapter 2, <clears throat> do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride <clears throat> in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So attempting to find satisfaction, joy outside of God is as if that person is just saying, I'm going to pursue the world and what the world has offered me. So you have what God offers. God offers eternal life through His Son. God points out the path of true life and hope in His Word. And if you and I are saying, <clears throat> we're going to pass on all those things, we can find enough satisfaction and meaning in the world. We're told, whoever does the will of God abides forever. And whoever does the will of the world is passing away along with his desires. So you ask, why, why does the author give us this thesis? <clears throat> he does it so that you will heed. So that you and I <clears throat> won't be like teenagers. Teenagers, they seem to have this pattern. <clears throat> if you tell them, don't do that. They're going to start thinking, the first thing I got to do is what my father or my mother said don't do. Because there must be something good about it that's just so great and so fun. And here, the author, God himself is telling us there is no satisfaction outside of him. Proverbs 12, 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. There's certain statements about how the wise man listens and learns from the mistakes of others. And the fool is the one who can't even learn from his own mistakes. And this is a call that you and I would not be fools. That we would learn from the instruction of others. That we would heed God's word. And attempting the same thing, but expecting a different result, would be foolishness. Do not pursue these vanities, for they cannot satisfy. We have the promise, whoever who does the will of God abides forever. And what is the will of God? It is to believe in the one that he has sent. It is to cling to Jesus Christ as your only hope. It is to obey the word of the Lord, not because you want to earn your salvation, because that is what he commands us to do. That, that he freely gives us salvation in his son, that salvation is already received. Yet he commands us that we would follow him. 
That we would follow him out of our gratitude, out of our thanksgiving for the salvation he has shown us. So this is the first point, the thesis of Ecclesiastes. We have also the objective of Ecclesiastes in verses 9 through 11. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. <clears throat> Here, the person is Kohelet. And you think back to uh, what we talked about at the beginning of Ecclesiastes in chapter 1, <clears throat> that uh, the mention is king in, king in Jerusalem. Uh, but you compare that to the beginning of Proverbs, where Solomon's name is actually mentioned. So some, some people think that the author of Ecclesiastes is Solomon. Um, I don't think that's something, that's not a hill that one ought to die on. Would not he wrote it is not so important. You notice that in Ecclesiastes, Solomon's name isn't mentioned. right? Uh, what we can say is that the author is the Holy Spirit. The author is that one shepherd, as we see in the end of verse 11. What's important is that God is the one who authored it. We have other books uh, where they are anonymous. Hebrews is anonymous. We don't know who wrote it, but it is authoritative. It comes from God. So this preacher, Kohelet, who he was, he was a wise man, we're told, besides being wise. And then what he did, he taught the people knowledge. And the methods that he used, he, he weighed and he studied there in verse 10. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 9. He taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. So you think about what the, the Holy Spirit does regarding the word that he, he uses. He uses the abilities of people. Uh, that uh, when you look at people like John, uh, John who wrote 1 John and, and uh, the Gospel of John, that John was a fisherman. And when you read his writings, that they are simple. Uh, some claim that uh, Greek probably wasn't even John's first language. So when you read his, his writings, they're rather simple. And then you read the writings of other people, like Luke or like Paul, who are very educated. The writing is very different. So, so then God did not dictate something for uh, the human author to write. That that's, not, that's not the form of inspiration. God, that God worked through men. Uh, but every word that is there is there because of the will of the Holy Spirit. That prophecy did not come by the will of man, but men who were moved along by the Holy Spirit. When you think about this big picture, so uh, he weighed and studied and arranged many proverbs with great care, but the big picture, what the author does is that he sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. That part of wisdom is being able to instruct, being able to teach. Now, when push comes to shove, you realize that certain people just aren't going to learn. That, that knowledge, even the perfect teacher, who is Jesus Christ, he, he instructed thousands, he instructed many throughout his life. 
And how many people listened to him? How many people followed him and obeyed him? It's not, it's not an error of the teacher. Uh, oftentimes it's the error of the student. But what wisdom does do, the tongue of the wise makes knowledge pleasant. That the wise make knowledge acceptable or pleasant. Yet at the same time, uprightly, he wrote words of truth. There's the necessity of truth. That in Hosea chapter 4, that God was concerned that his people were perishing for lack of knowledge, for lack of truth, that they were perishing. And so here, you think about the importance of finding words of delight. Perhaps also there's uh, the meaning of these key phrases. For example, you look at chapter 3 in Ecclesiastes, where the author says that God makes everything beautiful in its time. That there's there's certain phrases, even uh, even that that poem uh, in Ecclesiastes chapter three about a time for everything. That these are things such as the words that are pleasing, pleasing statements, words that stick, and and there we see also the effect, the effect of these words. There in verse eleven, the words of the wise are like goads. What is a goad? I once knew a man whose last name was Goad. I was thinking maybe, maybe he he was a uh, you know in England they they would have last names according to occupation. So Chandler, Cooper, Fowler, uh, these these words Miller they're they're all na- last names that are associated with occupations. That that this this. Uh, friend, his brother in Christ, last name is Goad, right? Maybe he's part of that same group. His job was to goad an animal. And here, you think about what a goad is. That you have a farm animal, a, a beast of burden. And a goad is this sharp stick. It's, it's not like needle sharp where it would impale them and kill them, but rather it's, it's somewhat blunted, but it's somewhat sharp. And the animal is poked and it's moved. It's moved forward. And the image there is that uh, a goad is not for comfort or ease. And knowing yourself, knowing myself, we must admit that we regularly need the goad of God's word. God's word shocks us out of our comfort. That it's a jolt. It's like that alarm in the morning. Does anyone love their alarm going off in the morning? I mean, how, how many alarms are broken because, you know, you slap on it, you knock it off the nightstand or whatever. No one loves, no, no one's, oh, I, I love hearing my alarm in the morning. No one, how often do people love getting goaded by a sharp stick? But this is part of righteousness, this is part of spiritual maturity, is that you and I realize that sharp stick, we need that all the time. We need that. I'll give you a simple example. I'll give you a simple example. When you got up this morning, just imagine a family halfway across the world in Afghanistan. Think about the challenges that they face. This Sunday morning, that they, if they were getting up, they would say, okay, we're going to get up, we're going to gather with God's people, and we're going to worship with them. And if we're caught, that'll be the last worship that we attend. 
Are we going to do it? And perhaps they're saying, yes, indeed, we will go worship. And it will be our last worship, so it better be a good worship. And then you think about the challenges we have in the United States. Where people could say, hey, well, number one, am I going to show up on time to church even? Yeah, that's the first question. And then the second question might be, hey, am I even going to go? Oh, oh, wait a minute. I forgot so-and-so invited me. Uh, they, they invited me out to a birthday party this morning. Or, hey, the weather is so nice today. Finally, the heat started to, to go a bit. And, uh, well, it'd be a great day to take the boat out in the lake. We never get there. Think about all the challenges that we face, the ease and the comfort, and how we need the goat of God's word. You think about how the goat works. The goat of God's word tells us our true state before God, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God's word tells us you and I don't measure up. We don't like to hear that. We like we like the therapeutic. We like the, the self-esteem, right? We like the, hey, we gotta be more positive, we gotta be more upbuilding. That's the first thing. It tells you about your state. You're under judgment of God. Because you sinned against him, you've fallen short of his perfect standard. Then it tells you something you have to do. You have to repent of your sins, forsake your pride, your wanton pleasures, forsake the material things, everything that you see and can feel, can touch, and that you say is valuable. And God, in his word, tells us repent. You can't bring those things with you. You have to forsake them. You have to love Jesus more than any of those things. Believe upon Jesus Christ, he commands. Trust in the Lord, the only God who saves. And he tells us the hardest thing. You cannot save yourself. You are not your own savior. That Jesus alone saves. But I work really hard. I, I like to obey his word. I love people. No. We don't measure up. Jesus alone is perfect. He proves that we fail. And we fail miserably. He alone is righteous. He is God's perfect standard. Well, then after I embrace Jesus, well, can I just coast? Well, coasting is downhill. Last time I checked. It's downhill slope. Hell is downhill. Heaven is an uphill battle. Not that you work for it. Not that you earn anything. Jesus freely gives eternal life. He freely gives the forgiveness of sins. There's a point in life where the believer crosses from death to life. That in justification, you cross from death to life. And you don't cross back. There's not this, you go from death to life. And then you go from life back to death. And then flip-flop. No, no. Justification is a one-time deal. From death to life. All who are in Christ are forgiven. But he does say that the Christian life is an uphill battle. And if you think that we can coast our way to heaven, that this is, this is a lie from the devil. This is part of the goad, the goad of God's word. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. As it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Have you ever wondered regarding the goad? What happens 
if your feelings and the world's standards, if they don't agree with God's word, well, you and I have to come to the conclusion that our feelings can be wrong, and they often are wrong, and that the world's standards are constantly changing. They're, they're in flux. That the, the world's standards are like goalposts that are constantly moving. Don't depend upon them. And this is, this is the principle about nails. So the word of God is a goad. It drives us on. That we have to be willing to accept that we're not what we need to be. That God desires that we would be mature in Jesus Christ. That things about you, things about me have got to change. And we've got to be willing to accept that. That this is not the armchair. This is not the lazy boy. That the Christian life was not meant to be easy. And that's why the goad is necessary. There's also the matter of the nails. So the word of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. Talked about how the world is constantly changing. The word of God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Because our Lord Jesus, who is the word incarnate, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He, our Lord Jesus spoke in this hyperbole, <clears throat> When he said, heaven and earth may pass away. So we think about uh, heaven being eternal, that, that heaven will always be there. But he said, heaven and earth may pass away, but my words will never pass away. His word doesn't change. His, the, his word is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What was wrong back then was wrong a hundred years ago, and it's wrong today, and it's wrong tomorrow. And, and yet what the world is constantly saying, no, 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 standards change. Hey, this book even, you know, scholars don't agree. Hey, we came up with new interpretations to, to accept these things. Don't accept them. Don't accept them. Is that all kinds of people will come and say, well, we didn't have all the answers back then. These standards start to change. The goalposts are moving. Yet we're told that God's word... God's word are like nails firmly fixed. Downstairs in my basement, I have this table where the screws into those holes, they no longer hold. So I have these little clamps, clamps that hold the top to the bottom of the table. And if you push the top of the table, it'll slide right off. And without these nails, without the nail of God's word, it's as if you have this tabletop that's constantly moving. And this is, this is what we mean even in our everyday language when we talk about, uh, hey, let's, let's nail down some of our plans. Right? Let's, let's fix, let's make final, let's make permanent some of our plans. And that's what the word is. The word is fixed. And we ought to see it as unchanging. We ought to see our God as unchanging. That his word, we cannot expect to be popular. But you realize that if you and I are going to follow Jesus Christ, we cannot expect that the world will approve. So that's the second point, the objective, the objective of Ecclesiastes. We have the third point, the source of Ecclesiastes. 
the end of verse 11. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. So, all the Bible, however many human authors there are, there is one author. That's the Holy Spirit. Doesn't matter who wrote it, God penned it. It's God breathed. That's why it's authoritative. That's why it's necessary. That's why it's clear. That's why it's necessary that all of these things describe God's word. They're given by one shepherd. Remember the scene when Samuel was receiving his call from God. That Samuel is a little boy, that this was the promised child, uh, so his mother, Hannah, dedicated him to the Lord. And when he was still quite young, that she uh, gave him up to Eli uh, to be his, uh, to, to be discipled as a priest, was it? And um, in the middle of the night, Samuel was hearing the voice of God, and he thought it was Eli. So he goes to Eli and says, hey, you called me. He says, no, I didn't call. Go back to bed. And then this happened a few times, and then Eli realized, no, wait a minute. It seems like he's being spoken to by God. So he instructed Samuel, okay, next time this person calls, don't wake me up. Uh, Say instead, speak, for your servant is listening. And here, we we ought to gather from this and learn from it. That regarding God's word, that it's spoken by one shepherd, our shepherd Jesus Christ. And that when God speaks in his word, that we ought to say, speak, for your servant is listening. Now, we have to be reminded at times, this is not a literary work. This is not just one book of many books on your shelf. This is the only book that is God-breathed. This is the only book that's spoken of by God, that God spoke it out. And that when God speaks, that you and I, his servants, that we ought to be listening. We ought to be obeying his word. We ought not to forget whose book this is. And that we ought not to forget that rejecting it, ignoring it, it will come with great consequences. Here also, in verse 12. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Here, what we have is the implication that uh, there is completeness to the scriptures. There's completeness to God's word. That we ought not to think that the word of God can be added to. We cannot add to it any way. That the sentiment behind that is a rather low view of God and a high view of man. When people start to think that they can add to God's word, essentially what the author is saying is that you open up the box and there is no end. He says, son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. So the warning, the warning that we have there 
is that if someone thinks they can add to God's word, it will never end. It will go on. And it will be weariness. <clears throat> Consider even the warnings of Scripture. Revelation 22, verse 18. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. These are stern warnings. We must not think that <clears throat> the wisdom of men can get to that level of the word of God. There's something very different than anything the church fathers wrote compared to the word of God. They may help us to understand uh, what the word of God is, but it's not as if any of those works, however essential they were, none of, it's, it's not as if we needed any of them. Any one of those can be removed from the shelf, and God's word is still complete. It's still perfect. So let us never think that God's word can be attitude in any way, whether today or tomorrow or whenever. So that's the third point, the source of Ecclesiastes. It's God-given. The fourth point is the conclusion of Ecclesiastes. The end of the matter, <clears throat> all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Here, you have the duty of man summed up in two things. One is the fear of God, and the other is the obedience to God's commands. But they go together. These two things go together. Regarding the fear of God, people ask, what do you mean by this fear? What is the fear of God? Well, it's not a slavish fear. It's not a fear merely of God's judgment or his torment. Just think about uh, Mark chapter 5, where you have the demons there called legion, and uh, they... They identify Jesus, son of the most high God, and they ask him, are you here to torment us? Is our time come? This is a slavish fear. Men can think the same way as these demons. They have the fear of God, demons do, but they don't obey. That instead, we ought to think of the fear of God as reverence and awe. Hebrews 12, 28 talks about how we ought to worship God in reverence and awe. That we ought to understand him much higher than a human father, but he's our heavenly father. That we ought to understand that there is respect and honor, homage to be paid to him. That he is far greater than any human king. That he is king of all the earth. That the fear of God spells out our understanding of who we are before this God. That he is holy. That we understand his greatness, his power, his majesty. That he is eternal. That he created us from nothing. That he created the whole world of nothing. And that this God, when he speaks, that we ought to listen. That our lives should revolve around him. And besides this fear, it's manifested in obedience to his commandments, that God spoke in his word, and that you and I manifest our love to him by obeying him. That's 1 John 5, 2-3. By this we know that we love 
the children of God. Uh, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. We ought not to think that God's commandment keeps us back from the fun things and the good things of life. In fact, the commandments spare us from the painful things, the pitfalls in life. And we think about how the fear of God and the obedience to God's commandments, that they cannot be separated. Just imagine if someone has the fear of God but doesn't obey God's commandments. What is that really? Some form of superstition, some form of sentimentalism. Just like those demons, they fear, but they don't obey. And among humans, that there would, it would be some form of superstition. And then you have uh, obedience to God's external commands without the fear of God. Then you have some form of legalism, just as the Pharisees, that uh, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. That obedience must go together with the fear of God, a proper respect for him. And then here also, he warns about the judgment to come. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This should be a warning to every one of you. God will bring every deed into judgment. It's not saying that God will bring every sinner into judgment. It's actually saying God will bring every work every deed of every sinner into judgment. Other scriptures talk about how every careless word, every idle thought, that God is able to separate the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So we ought not to think that anything will be hidden from God's sight. The good news of the gospel Say, on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. That our Lord Jesus will be judged. And that this is the conclusion. Is that after all those things are tempted, the vanities are tempted, or if we believe God in his word, we ought not to pursue them, we need not pursue them, that we ought to obey God. We ought to fear him. That we ought to know that God is judge. We read earlier... 1 John chapter 2, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So here, we ought to understand, the judgment of God will come. And you realize, we ourselves are sinners. How will we be free from this condemnation? Is that we have an advocate who is Jesus Christ, the righteous. It is in Him alone that we have our forgiveness. It is in Him alone that you and I have eternal life. That we must trust in Him. We must cling to Him. And that our love for Him is manifested that we obey Him from the heart and give Him honor. Could we go to our God together in prayer? Our Lord God, we thank You, Father.